Today's Daf Yaimi Shir is sponsored. Le'el Nishmas Gitol Perabas Betzal Neshama should have an aliyah from all the learning that we do here in the Hollywood Shtibol. The Gemara on Daf Gimel Amar four lines from the top, quotes Ad Soif HaShmeira, the line from the Mishnah, where we talked about the end time for reciting the evening Shema. At the end of the watch, Micah Sover Rebbe What did Rebbe Yezer hold? Are there three watches to the night? So let's assume nightfall would be at 6 o'clock, right? Sunrise, 6 a.m. So it's 12 hours divided by 3 is 4 hours a watch, correct? So when would the first watch end? Right? Ends? When would the first watch end? 10 o'clock. Perfect. Exactly. Layla ad arba shois. Couldn't he have just said that? Just say ad arba shois until four hours. The ikas of arba mishmaras havi alaylo. If there are perhaps four different, the night is divided into four watches, which would mean that when would be the last time to say Shema? Then it would be nine o'clock. Layma al Say if you have three hours. I saw yesterday and I heard that other. People were talking about it, so it was very interesting. We have all these different opinions in the Mishnah. When is your deadline for saying the evening Shema, correct? Is that a hard deadline? We know Rabbi Gamliel famously said, you have till the morning. Whenever your teenagers get home, you, you know, you could still say Shema. But uh, the Chacham said, Rabbi Yazir, we're quoting over here, is either three or four hours. That's you have a very short uh, time frame to say the evening Shema. What do you do if you miss the time frame according to them? Do you not say Shema? Do you just say Shemona Esrei of Meir? Do you not say Shema? So Rabbeinu Nirai brought down in the Ran, in the back of your Gemara, says actually that's what the Chacham said. Just like the Chacham tell you, do not shake a lul of an Esrei on Shabbos, even if it falls out on the first day of Sukkot. Even if it's the mitzvah d'araisa, right? The Torah says you have to shake lul of an Esrei. It's a mitzvah d'araisa to shake lul of an Esrei on the first day. If you, if it falls out on Shabbos, the Chacham have the right b'shav al tasa to tell you not to budge and don't touch that little of an esrik. The same thing, Chacham have the ability to tell you do not say Shema at night, even though it's really just a siag, it's just a fence to stop you from procrastinating. But they have that ability, and that is what the Chachamim and Rabbi according to the Rabbeinu Nirai, the halacha is not like that. But according to Rabbeinu Nirai. The, it's a hard deadline to finish saying Shema, and you shall not say it after that deadline. I'm not saying the halacha is like that. It's just a very interesting concept that the Chacham could come and tell you do not fulfill an explicit Torah command. But unlike, unlike with the Lula, if you pass that time according to him, you're not, it's not like you're putter. You missed the time. So one is an Oynas, and one is not an Oynas. Right. Shabbos falls out on first day. Chacham said, we don't want you to carry the of Nesr. You're going to come to call Shabbos. There's nothing in your control about that. Whereas Shema, it's like a, it, it, is, it was in your control and it's still in your control even afterwards. It, it, I hear the kasha. I hear the kasha. Says the Gemara, we are now on the seventh line down, in the, the eighth line down on Dav Gimel Amad Aleph. Of course, he holds the night is divided into three different watches, so to speak. There's 
divisions of the night that are in Shemayim, in the Rekiah, and there's divisions of the night on this earth as well. So there's Malachim, heavenly dwellers who know how to divide the night and know when the shift change comes in the evening. But there's also signs in this world. You know, I was once with Shalom Kamenetsky. He was answering questions from college students in New Jersey, and that's Shmuel Kamenetsky's son. And he said a very interesting point. He says, when somebody comes over and asks him, Rabbi, when Mashiach comes, are we still going to have cars? Or some abstract question that's not relevant to your life as a Jew today. So Shalom said, that's how I know how much you know about practicing Judaism or how little or what, it's, what you're really asking. Because you ask me a question that has absolutely no relevance to your day, life as a Jew today. It's a good, nice question. It's a nice thing to know. But these are not things that, you know, these are things that are more in the realm of those that know don't say and those that say don't know. Mamili de Rekia, matters of the Rekia, of the Malachim and the Arelim and the heavenly dwellers, are really, we, don't, we understand very little about, and very little of our time of learning about Judaism do we focus on what the Malachim are doing. This Gemara will be a little bit of an exception. The Tanya, as we learned in the Bryser, Rabbi Lazar, in fact, explicitly stated this, that there's three watches to the night in a Mishmar. And the most beautiful thing happens at each changing of the watch. God sits, He screams out like a lion. Hashem screams. Like Shaig Yishaig Al Naveyu, the Simin Ladavar, the Simin Ladavar. What's the way? So we see that there's something clearly in the heavens that is very special about these nighttime divisions. But again, what relevance does that have to us? We can't tell. We're not Malachim. We can't tell when Hashem is screaming like a lion about and about what the Gemara will tell us. But we, it's not really relevant. Says the Brisa, the Simon Ladaver, the Shmari Shaina, Hamar Nair, Shnia Club. The first watch, how do you know when the first watch, and we'll see whether it's the end time, exactly what the description is, but it's the time, when is that first watch? It's the time when you hear donkeys braying. I was once on, uh, in a place in Eretz Yisrael where I have a cousin, uh, uh, some kibbutz. And we always used to make fun because he grew up in, uh, in Manchester in a city and he moved out to Beit Chilkia. And we always used to say, you moved out to the farms. And he said, no, there's a hundred homes already built here. It's not such a farm. And we, Taka went there for a Shabbos. And for Friday night, I think, I hear the braying of the donkeys. I said, you did move out to a farm. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's the bottom line. So the first watch is marked by Hamarnar. Shnia, what's the second watch? Klav Tsoyakin. The dogs are barking. To me, that was a little interesting because I don't know how many of us, I mean, maybe I, I just don't hear it, but do you hear it? Hollywood happens to have a lot of dogs, right? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, well, okay. So uh, do you hear a lot of dogs uh, 
barking, right? <coughs> the cats, you hear the cats? So you're saying they're pets. Pets. Okay, probably a wild dog. Like where you have donkeys, you have wild dogs. I would say that, you know, okay, Shlishis and the third time of the night is already when Tinoik Yunak Mishtei Imoi, the baby wakes up to nurse the Ishim Saperis and Baila and a husband and wife who are sleeping together, they're already waking up, they're already talking with each other, in the, so it's already towards the morning. So now we have a little bit of context about what Rebbe was talking about, three watches, three different uh, shifts to the evening. We already know, we can start imagining events that happen during the, each one of those. What is Rabbi Lezer counting? What is he teaching us over here? What was the first, what happens during the first watch? What did we say happens? You're going to hear what? The donkey's brain, right? The donkey, right? So why do I need a simon? If that's, is that the beginning of the evening? Or is that the end of the first period? So again, each one is four hours, right? We divided the night into four hours, let's say, six to six. So it, it was, when did the donkeys bray? At six or at 10? It was the first one. Right, but is it the beginning of the first one or the end of the first one? A little after six or shortly before 10? And if you're telling me it's the beginning of the first watch, that that's when the donkey's brain, and that's when Rabbi Lazar is telling you that you have a very short time to say that Shema, <laughs> I don't need a simon, just tell me that immediately at nightfall is, is, is the end time to say the Shema. <laughs> don't tell me some of a mishmar, of a, uh, an evening watch, which is when the donkeys are making noise. If he's actually telling me then the end of the time period, so it would be 10 p.m., so now, in that brisa that we just quoted, what was what happens during the third watch? What was it, what did we say? What noises will you hear? You'll hear babies who are waking up to start nursing, and you'll hear people talking to each other. And you'll hear. I don't need a simon. I could have just told you. That's that's yeah. That's when the sun starts to come up. That's yamamahu. So why is he giving me? events to describe a clear time. I think that's really what the Gemara is driving at over here. It's a very obvious time. Why do you have to give me events? He's telling you, he's trying to teach us the end of the first watch, and the beginning of the last one. And the middle of the middle one. So each Simon that he gave is actually not describing the same exact time point of that watch. He's telling us the end. So then what do you need to tell me? That the night ends, the last watch of the evening ends, when you start hearing babies crying, when you start hearing uh, couples talking to each other at the, when they start waking up in the morning. If somebody's sleeping in a dark house where they have no windows, they have no sunlight, and they don't know when is the time to start saying the, the morning Shema, and, or to finish saying the evening Shema, 
Well, according to him, you wouldn't be able to, but according to Shem Gamliel, you would still be able to. So you need a sign. What would be a sign if your babies are starting to cry? That is, according to Rabbi Ezer, that would be a good indication that people are, so when you start to wake up, people start to talk to each other, that would be a good indication, even though you can't see anything because you're in a bias awful, you're in a dark house, that you're allowed to say Shema. It makes sense because if, it's, uh, if, you're, if you're getting notified at the end already, you don't, you don't have enough time. This way, at least you have enough of a heads up. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean you're going to say it right that moment, but at least you're, you're now in Shema mode because you hear those Simanim that Rebbe Yezer is presenting. But we're talking about the time to say the morning Shema. Because according to Rebbe when do you have to finish? You have to finish the evening Shema by when? Ad Saif Eshmeira right? Till the end of the first one, which would be four hours into the night. But he still gave us a brisa to explain Samanim for each, uh, for each Mishmar. And the third one, he could have just said daytime who? Daytime, we think, is a great indicator of the time to start saying the morning Shema. But apparently, if you live in a place where there's no sunlight, if you're in a basement, if you're in an attic, if you're in a windowless room, you need some other simon, such as uh, babies who are nursing, crying, and couples talking to each other in the morning. That's a raya that people are supposed to talk to each other in the morning. Some people take the halachas of not saying hello, which we're going to get to, not allowed to talk before davening, not allowed to say hello to people, that's true. But at the same time, <laughs> you have people in your household and they're up at that, if they want to talk to you at that time, then you could not, <laughs> then you see that the Gemara didn't consider it in Avera, the Gemara considered it a simon, that that's normal human behavior, as you try and be friendly, even at some unearthly uh, hour of the morning, if they want to talk to you. Amar Rav Yitzchak Rav. Gimel Mishmaris Have Alayla. So we're talking, quoting now Rav, Rav was really an Amaira, but we always know the rule. What's the rule with Rav? Rav, Tana, Upalik, right? Rav was a Tana. It was the status of a Tana and had the ability to argue with Tanam, even though he was later, even though he was from Namaran. So now Rabbi Yitzhak Bashmul is quoting in the name of his Rebbe, Rav. The Alko, Mishmar, Umishmar, Yeshev Akadish Baruchu, Vishaye Kariva Oimer. So we had earlier that we said, there are samanim for the day and there are samanim for the night, right? For, for the rakia. There's samanim for the earth, for us earthly beings who don't understand necessarily Kabbalah and matters of hidden intelligence. But Hashem, is, we said, roars like an ari, like a lion in the night. What is Hashem roaring about? What is He saying? The Oimer. Woe to the sons of mine, my children, that's us fellows, that because of their avoidance, because of their sins, I have destroyed my house, I burnt my sanctuary. From here we see that even though we're in this dark, long gullus, but every night Hashem says, he laments the fact that we are in Gaulus and that the base of Mikdash had to be destroyed. It's not something like Hashem is saying, you know what? No, I did the right thing. I mean, it's hard for us to understand these terms, Kaviyachal, but the Abishter saddened every night that we are without the base of Mikdash 
and that we are here in Gaulus. And I think that's a, that's a very comforting thing to hear that it's not so hard for us to push and do tshuva and bring Mashiach because we're not going against what Hashem wants. We're rather doing exactly what He wants by pushing to do tshuva and come closer to Hashem. Tanya Amr I was walking on the path. And I came into one of the ruins of Yerushalayim to pray. So what is the connection between this story that Rabbi Yaisi is telling us that he was traveling on the way, he needed a place to daven, he found a chorva, he found a ruins. The answer is because we just finished a Gemara even though we started off by talking about when is the time to say Shema, but the conclusion of the previous Gemara was all about Hashem's uh, uh, mourning the destruction of Yushalayim and of the Beis HaMikdash, and now the Gemara leads off with a story connected to that statement. It's a story, but we're going to see that the story has a lot of halachic implications. Today, one of the, we'd love to find out from a story what the halacha is to do. Like if you would ask me on the day of a siyam, do you say tachanon? If you're making a siyam, do you say tachanon? So, right? So by the siyam, a shas yesterday in Florida, so the, uh, the, the Rabbi Weberman, Rabbi Weberman was there and he said he was shocked that some of the Rabbanim wanted to say tachanon. And uh, he, he had such a young tavla Rabbanim, the Gemara and Shabbos, the Gemara says that the biggest day of happiness is the day of a siyam. So how could you say tachanon at the siyam itself by Mincha? So uh, that's a great, that's something that'll stay in my memory. Is that it, it, It's going to stay in my memory as the halacha. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think uh, most people will, will, will take on like that. I was actually watching Diane Dunner. I, right, oh, <laughs> right? I was actually watching Diane Dunner who was sitting right in front of me and he, he sat down. After uh, he sat down, he didn't, there's no safe for so he didn't put his head big. But then when they started Kaddish, he stood up. So I don't know, uh, you know, and he was not by the main Siyam Ashas. It's not like maybe he wasn't making the Siyam or wasn't part of it. He already went to a different one. That for him was the only Siyam Ashas in America that he attended, that I believe. So, uh, what? 22 times a year, you don't, uh, 22 times every seven years, you don't say that. You know, that's right. <laughs> right? Well, my kids want to know if we could do it again next year. They enjoyed it. Okay. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we, we remember halacha that's taught us with a story. In fact, we know many Mishnayas, which Shem will come to, the Mishnah, like our Mishnah, our Mishnah ended with a story. What was the story in our Mishnah? Rabbi Gamliel said, when do you have to say Shematel? Till the, morning, till the morning, and the story was with his children, right? The story was his children came home from a wedding. So we do often learn halacha from a maisa, but not always. This story we're going to learn halacha. And it doesn't, sometimes we say, you can't ask a kasha on a maisa, right? Or you can't, can't shfregen kashas of a maisa. You don't ask questions on a story, but when it's a story that's brought down in the Mishnah or a b'risa, you do have the right to learn halacha from it. He guarded me while I davened in this ruin until I finished davening. When I finished my prayer, 
Amali said to me, Shalom Alecha Rabbi, the Amarti like Shalom Alecha Rabbi Amari. So Eliyahu Navi greets him, Shalom Alecha Rabbi. That's pretty chashev, right? Eliyahu Navi greeted him, Shalom Alecha Rabbi. Amali b'ni, m'pnei ma nechnasti l'chorva zu. Why did you enter into this chorva? Amarti like l'hispalo. I came in there to daven. Why did you go into a broken down structure, a churva of Yerushalayim, ruins, to daven? You should have davened in the road, on the way. You know, right? We all, when the olden days of telephone booths, you were able to walk into any telephone booth, pick up the phone, and uh, daven as long as Shemar as you wanted, or as long as a quarter would normally last, right? Nobody looked at you like, what are you doing? Today, we expect tolerance from the world. We make minyanim everywhere we go, and we expect tolerance, right? And Yohan Nevi told him, what are you going and hiding in a chorva for? You should have davened in the road. Maybe travelers or highway robbers will uh, start up with me. Yohan told me, so what are you davening such a long Shemayna Esrei for? There's a special formula that we're going to come to called the Tefillah Katsara. Tefillah Katsara allows you to shorten your davening and skip many of the words, even in Shemona Esrei. And you're traveling. You maybe didn't have a choice when it's time to travel. But you did have a choice in how long to daven for and where to daven. Nelio and Avi told me, Musar, what are you going into a makam sakana, into a ruin which could collapse on you at any minute? And perhaps there's other dangers, as we'll soon see. You should have davened a very short davening on the road. I think the shortest davening that I ever had while I was traveling was once on the Heathrow Express. And if I remember correctly, it goes from Heathrow Airport in London to... Paddington or King's Cross, Victoria, King's Cross, one of the stations, I think it was like 16 minutes till you're in downtown London. So I, and it was like very late. That was my last chance to daven Shmona Esra. I put on Tefillin and I davened on the, on the Heathrow Express. So uh, you have to daven at Tefillin Katsara. Yeah, Tefillin Katsara. I don't know what I did. Avinenu. My regular Shmona Esra could get pretty short too. But I said, I learned three things from Eliyahu Anavi. Do not enter into a ruined building that may collapse. And I was told, taught also to, to daven while you are traveling. Don't skip davening altogether, even if you don't have time. But rather say the tefillah kitzara. What is tefillah kitzara? So Ben uh, Ken already mentioned havinenu. If you look at Rashi, about twelve lines up on the right hand margin, tefillah kitzara havinenu. We will get to daf chavtes, and we will hear more about this special abridged Shmona Esrei for somebody who is traveling. Tachlis, Eliyahu Navi asked him, at the end of the day, good, you shouldn't have gone in there, you shouldn't have davened in there, but what did you hear once you were in there? You go into these uh, spooky places, into the ruins of Yushalayim, maybe there's demons, there's Shadim, there's Nazikim, there's all types of, uh, and who else, who knows what type of characters are hanging out there. What did you hear inside, uh, inside the ruin? Right? I said to him, Shamati Baskal. I heard a Baskal. 
Shemnahemes Kiyona that was making the sounds of Dove, Vaimeris Oilavanim, Shabbaminasehem, Echraftias Basi, Besaraftias Echali, Vehiglisim Lebein Haumais. And I heard the Bas call, a heavenly voice call out the same mourning and crying that Hashem, we mentioned earlier, Hashem every night cries that we are no longer in the base of Mikdash and that we are stuck amongst the nations of the world. replied to him, you think that was a one-off, Baskal, that was a one-time heavenly voice. I promise you that Hashem says this constantly, every single day, three times a day, Hashem says the same thing, how I wish that I didn't have to destroy the base of Mikdash and put my children into exile. Not only that, at the time when the Jewish people enter into their shuls and into the Bata Midrashas, right? What's the difference between a base Knesses and a base Medrash? Until now, this might have been a base Knesses. I don't know how it was set up originally, but at the moment, it's a base Medrash. A base Knesses is a place of gathering for davening, and a base Medrash is a place of learning. It, there were times when that was a very strict separation of powers and people didn't learn in a place, in, in the room where they davened. Which one doesn't need mezuzahs? Uh, well, we, today we put mezuzahs on all of them, but uh, I don't know. Um, the, but the, what? It's Knesset, doesn't need a mezuzah. But we, I, I don't know. Are they still, well, I don't know how, I assume the shtiba was set up with learning in mind. But uh, it's also it's, uh, it's a residence. It's not even either. It's neither. Okay. I, I actually, forget. A residence is always a base medrash. A residence is always a base medrash. Everybody has in mind that when they move into a house that they're going to learn Torah in their house, right? That they're going to learn Torah on a regular basis. But every time we come in, whether it's a base knesset or a base medrash, what does Hashem respond to our Amen Yeheshmei Rabba? Ashrei Hamelech, praiseworthy is the king, that gets praised like this by his children. How tragic to the father who has to exile such children who praise him so. And and how tragic it is that the children have to be sent away from their father's table. Now we get to the halachic analysis of the story. Till now was a beautiful divrei uh, chizik and agadita. How much Hashem it pains Hashem these chorvas yushalayim the destruction that we live in, the exile. But now we have to know, Tachlis, what are the halachas that we learn out of here? We'll give you three good reasons not to walk into a ruins, a cave, a, a collapsed home, in, especially in Yerushalayim. Because people will be suspicious that you're entering into a hidden area which is not inhabited in order to do an Avera with a woman. 
because it may bury you there, it may collapse on you. And because of the mazikin. What are mazikin? Demons. Demons, shadim, spiritual uh, uh, things that hang out in places, in dirty places and in abandoned places, waiting to catch the lone straggler who doesn't have enough merits, who doesn't have enough sechusim to protect himself. Nechashad says the Gemara, because you're worried that people will suspect you, that you went into a suspicious place. I think this actually is funny. These two words actually really open up a huge halachic discussion of Choshe B'Kshayrim and Dan L'Kav Sechus and uh, a uh, ethical, philosophical question. When you see somebody doing something suspicious, at what point do you say, I have to judge that person favorably? And at what person does the, do, we, do, do you get blamed for acting in a suspicious manner? If somebody sneaks off into a place where you, they wouldn't naturally choose to be, such as an abandoned house. We're telling you not to do it because you're going to end up casting suspicion on yourself that you went to meet a Zaina, you went to meet a woman there who you should not be with. What do you mean? I'm going in there to Davin. Why is that? Why is it my problem? What crazy scenario you're coming up with in your head that I'm doing wrong, right? Live and let live. Why do I have to be worried about your being Cheshit B'Kshayim? But the answer is we see from this story, we see from this Brisa, that you're not supposed to act in a way which will look suspicious. Don't do things that will make people think that you're a bad dude. Is there a reason for that? I mean, it's you're having it as logical. Right, right. Uh, I'm saying the halacha, uh, at least the Gemara is making the case that it's a shared responsibility. Your public actions are a shared responsibility. You don't have the right, you you don't, it's not, you you have an obligation. I don't know, you know, right. You have an obligation not to be machshal other people, not to put a stumbling block in front of other people with your actions. But for what purpose? To avoid that he to, should be judging? Correct. Well, I'm looking out for him. So, so I think, so. I, I, or, that's what I'm saying. This is a big discussion. This is a great share. But the way I always understand it with Marasayan, with Chaj Mosheim, is the Torah accepts as a fact that people judge. And we're trying to protect ourselves over here. If you want to be smart and you want to protect yourself, the Torah is saying, don't pretend that everybody else has an obligation not to judge you. You also have an obligation not to do suspicious things. That's, that's what I take it without a further halakhic analysis, and that's what we see over here. The question is, each one of these three reasons seems a pretty good reason in its own. Why do I need such all three reasons, the, right? The, the, the Bryce taught, taught us Three very valid reasons. So then that's the Gemara is going to challenge. The last line, the middle of the line, you tell me don't go into a cave because maybe somebody will suspect that I'm doing it in order to do a sin. I have a better reason why you shouldn't walk into a shaky old structure because it may bury you there. It may fall on top of you and, uh, and, and kill you. So the way I understand Bechati is there is some ability, depending on how long ago that building collapsed, to judge whether you're facing an imminent risk or the walls that are left 
are safe enough right now that they're not going to fall on you. So if you go into a building which just collapsed, but the remaining wall is still fresh and strong, it doesn't seem to have become an imminent danger, you may think that chorva is not the chorva that Eliyahu and Navi rebuked Rabbi Yaisi for going into. Such a chorva is a perfect place for me to go and daven. So therefore, we said there's another reason to, not to go in there because of the chashad and because of the demons, the mazikim. The mazikim. I still don't need to resort to the far-fetched reasoning that somebody will see you and suspect you of doing an avera even if there's not, you're not worried that this particular building will collapse on you, but there's also this concept of mazikin, of these uh, uh, shadim, of these demons that hang out in destroyed buildings, right? The Gemara betray. Two people traveling together. So it seems like these mazikim are very, uh, very strategic, and if they see two people traveling together, they say there's safety in numbers. We're not going to mess with two people. If one person travels alone and enters into dark, abandoned places, the mazik and the demons are hiding out there waiting for prey to attack. Who knows? A dibuk maybe will stick itself inside. You know? But if two people are traveling together, the mazikim will not attack. As the Gemara, if there's two people travel, walking together, nobody's going to suspect you of going to do an Avera. And if you look in Rashi, Rashi explains this is actually a tremendous halacha of Yichud. The last word on the first line of Rashi on the left-hand margin, chashad nami leka ditnan, like we learned in the Mishnah in Kedushin, aval that there's no prohibition of a woman being secluded with two men because each one will be embarrassed to do an Avera, to do something inappropriate in front of the other one. So if you're telling me that the Mishnah is trying to... Pr- exclude a scenario where two people are traveling together and they need a daven or they want to enter into some ruins for whatever reason and the ruins look strong enough to them that it's not going to collapse on them still shouldn't do it because of the mazikim well if it's two people together I don't have to worry about the mazikim so what would stop me from going in and if you tell me that one of these three reasons will apply in such a scenario it's not true if I have two people together, I'm not worried about the whole Zaina issue, about the whole inappropriate behavior issue, because two people are allowed to be together with a woman without being suspected. And for the Gemara, betray you, Pritzi, but there is a concept that if two people are known to be uh, act, uh, guilty of acting inappropriately with women, so Hilchas Yichud is only uh, guidelines. It's not an absolute promise that if two men are together, with one woman, nothing inappropriate is going to happen. In fact, if they're preetsim, if they're uh, preetsas, if they're known to be uh, uh, people who are not uh, acting according to the proper ways of conduct, then you have to have even stricter laws of yichud. Maybe the building will fall down on you, right? That was one of the reasons given. Why do I need that reason? The other two reasons given in the Mishnah should suffice. And the Gemara betray Ukshari with two people who are kosher. So, what reason should they have not to enter into 
the ruins. If you tell me because of chashad, no, they're allowed to be together in a, with a woman in a secluded place. There's no, uh, no, no, no avera suggested over there. If you tell me it's mazikim, we said already, mazikim don't attack when you travel in pairs. So, uh, so what, the, that's what reason would stop them from going in? Mapailas. Betrayu Kshari, when two people are kasha, you still need that reason that maybe the building will collapse on them. Mazikin, why do you have to tell me don't go into an abandoned structure because maybe there's demons there? It's funny. I don't know why I don't love the translation of Mazikin as demons. It is demons. But maybe it's because like Mazikin, they, they, they are something they're like connected to the Rakia, you know, the they're not, uh, demons are always associated with the devil. And I don't know, it just, but I think that, right, is there any other translation from Mazikin? They have an intent to do harm, right? It's, the they, they have a job, they're not. It's harmful, right? The word mazik. Yeah, yeah, harm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, so demons are something we think of as like maybe scary or, or of the devil, like you said. Right, and more connected to Averis. spirits that are meant, they, they have a, a tactless almost to do harm, right? Yeah. So I, I don't know, but that is the, as far as I know, that is, that, that is the, the word that goes hand in hand with it. Why do I need a reason to stop you from going into ruins of Mazikin? We already have two other good reasons. And for the Gemara, Gemara answers, Two people who are kosher people are not uh, in, in a new ruin that's not going to fall on you. If in such a case that yeah, those three factors apply, so then I'm not worried about Mazikin either because we already said the old rule that when two people are traveling together, even the Mazikin who have a mission to harm you are powerless. What does the Gemara answer? In a place where they were suspected. So apparently there's exceptions to every rule. And the story that occurred that the Brysa was talking about happened in a place where even when two people would be traveling together, the demons of that uh, region would still try and attack. Perhaps we'll say a different answer. We're talking about one person, where there's a new ruins that won't collapse on, collapse on you. But you're in the fields, in a scenario where you're walking alone, hiking along in the fields, and you come to a ruin, should you enter or not, somebody's going to see you with a woman hiding out in that chorva who you don't belong with. It's not going to happen. It's not usual to find a zaina in the fields. And... You're traveling, and but mazikim there will be, even if it's a new ruin. These are the reasons why I need all three reasons. So it seems to me like the Gemara went through a tremendous amount of work to establish why none of the fine scenarios where only one of the three reasons will be valid, and we've succeeded. Tanurabonat. Arba Mishmar is Abiyalaila. Getting back to our discussion from the Mishnah, how many uh, sections, how many watches of the night are there? The first opinion in this Brisa are Arba Mishmaris. Divre Rebbe. Rebbe said there's four. Rebbe Nasan Aimer Shalish. Rebbe Nasan said that there are three. 
My timer, the Rabbi Nassen. What's Rabbi Nassen's reason to say that the evening is divided into three? So he quotes a pasuk. Where's this pasuk from? It's a pasuk in Shaftim. Vayava Gidon Umeya Isha Shaita Bixeya Machna Gidon came with one hundred men. Rosha Shmaira Satikhaina, the begin at the head of the watch of the middle one. The head of the middle watch, the beginning of it. So if there's three watches, right? If the, if there's a, if there's a middle watch, how many there has to be one before and there has to be one after, correct? You can't have a middle it's like you can't have a donut hole without the donut around it, right? There's only a, a middle if you have something before and after. Huh, that's a great argument. So then what does Rebbe do with this Pasuk? How does Rebbe claim that there are, how many did Rebbe say? What was this? The, the, four, right, right? The first opinion the Bryce just cited was Rebbe. Two, two or three? Uh, uh, so you wanted to say the middle does not have a strict definition as one. It's one of the middle watches, right? That middle could imply number two or number three as long as it's not number one or four. Rabbi Nassin, Miksev Tchuna Shabbat Chunais. Does the pasuk say the middle of the middle ones? Tchuna Ksev. There is the, you, the pasuk is not defining the middle watch as one of the middle ones. It's defining it as the only middle one. So it's a machlekas how to understand the middle watch that give that was discussed by, by, that Gidon was talking about. Was he talking about a middle? of the night as in one possibility or a middle of the night as in one of two possibilities. My time at the Rebbe. So we know where Rebbe Nassim gets this from, right? That there can only be three, three uh, slots to the night. What's from, uh, from the Pasuk? Where's, Rebbe, where's Rebbe's source? Am Rebbe Zrika, Am Rebbe Ami, Am Rebbe Shubin Levi, Kosev Echad Oimer, Chatzois Laila, Akam Lahaydez, Lecha Amishpat Aitzit Kecha. Who's this referring to? Where's this Pasuk talking about? From what? Tell him. So who's it referring to? David Amelech. David Amelech says at midnight I would arise, Lahaydez Lecha Amishpat Aitzit Kecha, to praise Hashem on his righteous laws. So midnight was still going to sleep, but David Amelech was already waking up. Because of Echad, it's like uh, my grandfather is a, is a, drove till he was about 90, 91, and he lived in Brooklyn. And he used to go every morning from Flappish to Bar Park for a Chavusa. And I, we once asked him, Baruch Hashem, he doesn't do it anymore, but uh, he, was, he was about 90 when he stopped. And we once asked him, Zaidi, the people in Bar Park, they, some of them drive much more aggressive than you. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you do this? How do you drive at 90 years old from Flappish to Bar Park? He says, ach, I am back home long before any of these people think of waking up. I leave my house at five in the morning. I have a chavusa, I daven, I go to the bakery. I'm home by 7.15 in the morning before any of these guys are driving anywhere. So uh, David Melech at midnight was already uh, up and praising before any of us thought of uh, waking up. Where's that Pasuk from? The, is it the next Pasuk? It's, it's uh, also told, but it's not the next Pasuk. I get up in the Shmiris to uh, speak your praises. 
so a shmoros, right? That's in the plural, correct? A shmoros, not a shmora, but a shmoros in the plural. Ha-ketzad. How do you have middle of the, two middle of the night that David Amelech, right? We know that David Amelech wakes up in the middle of the night, but we also know that David Amelech referred to the middle of the night in the plural sense, that there's two middles of the night. This is the reason why Rebbe says there must be four, a uh, first watch, a last watch, and middle watches, middle shifts. Okay, it's at Arba Meshmar Sabi Alaylo. Why could there be multiple middle watches? No, that, 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 oh, more than two? Um, Probably would be possible, but we have two mandamer, one holds three, and one holds four. Right, exactly. One holds four. How did he know four, not five? Four for multiple. Ashmuros is is plural. It's plural. It's not many. Ashmuros is no. Could be five. There's no mandamer holds five. There's nothing. Right, that's his kasha. Rebbe comes up with number four because it says plural. A plural doesn't mean exclusively four. Plural can mean five, six, seven. Right. The answer is I have. I would, I would venture to say, because it also has to stim with the activities that happen right. in the night. Right, exactly. Something has to be an event that divides the, the night. Right. The, the events that we described in the beginning divide the night. They force you to say, okay, this part of the night is different than that part of the night because different events occur. It, it couldn't be five. It could potentially be six because uh, everything is divisible by 12 in, in terms of... Shah's money. Unless it says something... Specifically, so even in the summer when the days are longer and the night is shorter, it's still ca- counted as an hour. So you're you're not going to have five watches because five doesn't divide evenly into twelve, but six can divide evenly into twelve. So a better question is how come not six? six yeah. I hear very good. I hear I hear it's a good kasha. Reb Nassim Savala, Reb So what did Reb Nassim do with the proof from David Amelach? Savala Rabbi Yeshua. The time Shuai my Adshal Shas. The first three hours, what, are, what about the first three hours? So Rashi explains, Reb Nassim, if you look in the third narrow line down in the left-hand margin, Reb Nassim, he's not telling you of the night, he's telling you, I get up before other kings, not other people, but other kings. So three hours refers to the time that David HaMelech is up praising Hashem, not into the night, but before other kings wake up. That's the way of kings to wake up three hours into the day. So if daybreak is at six, they wake up at nine. Shis, the Laila, Yamama. Shis Delilah, six hours of evening time, and two of daytime. equals two Mishmaris. Ravashi says, Rib Nassim doesn't have to worry about your Pasuk. He doesn't even have to come on to say that the times that he, David HaMelech was referring to was not necessarily the times of the night, but the times that kings wake up. Because into the second shift, Mishmar is also called Mishmaros. Plural doesn't have to even a, a minimum of. We always thought plural means a minimum of two, and he's telling us a minimum of into the second shift. It's one plus point one or whatever the amount you want to make it. One and a half is also called two. So if night falls at six, and there are three watches, so if David Amelch would wake up at midnight, that would be into the second watch. That's called Mishmoros. That's called the, he's the middle of the night already. Okay. Says the Gemara. The Once you get the podium, you do not have to yield the balance of your time. You can keep going. 
So this is what Rabbi Zrika did, right? We quoted Rabbi Zrika's interpretation earlier, and Rabbi Zrika said, I do not yield the balance of my time, but rather I would like to teach you another halacha once you gave me the mic. Do not speak in front of a dead person except things which are relevant to the dead. What should you be careful not to speak about in front of a mace in a cemetery, for example? Things which a mace will feel impoverished. Uh, uh, somebody who's buried, somebody who's dead, somebody who's no longer in this world. Do not do mitzvahs, do not do things which will make them feel impoverished. Less lemba. You want to talk about uh, baseball? There's no capeta. Well, baseball. Maybe. Okay, depends. The Ekadamri and others explain. Don't discuss anything that's not relevant or not important in the cemetery, not the Torah, because you'll make the mason jealous that they can't learn, they can't do mitzvahs anymore, and certainly don't discuss uh, lightheaded matters. Now, the, the Gemara is going to get back to this whole concept of Mason listening in to what you're saying. But first, we go back to David HaMelech. David So the Gemara says, we have a different Pasuk. Where's this Pasuk from? It also in Tehillim. That says David HaMelech wakes up in the evening time. Not that he doesn't wait till midnight. He gets up as soon as it's dark to start praising Hashem. My, uh, so the, uh, says the Gemara, that's not a kasha. How do you know that neshef means the evening time? From the Pasuk in Mishle, right? That's the Pasuk in Mishle? That says, uh, refer, nefesh, the word uh, nefesh is be'erev, is the evening. David HaMelech was saying that I never slept past midnight. So if somebody doesn't sleep and they find themselves waking up always at midnight, they shouldn't go thinking, maybe I need a prescription, maybe something's wrong with me. They should uh, say, ah, it's a sign. I could be like David Kisus, He would be nodding off like a horse. But at midnight, he was jumping up like a lion. He learned till midnight from the beginning of the evening. But then he would go on to sing praises and daven. The Gemara says, how do you know that the word nefshef means nighttime? Nefesh is actually the morning. Where's this Pasuk from? Pasuk in... Who? Shmuel. What's the Pasuk? From the morning till the night. So Neshef means morning. From night to night, not from morning to night. If Nefesh means nighttime, it should say nighttime or it should say Neshef Ad Neshef, but not Nefesh Ad Erev. Neshef describes the time in between the twilights, the, uh, in between periods, between the, tra- the transition of day to night and night to day. So Neshef at this point in the Gemara does not mean the evening, but rather the transitional period between day and night and night and day. We have four more minutes, right?
The David, me have a yada palga How did David Amelech say with certainty that he never slept past midnight and that he always arose to praise Hashem at midnight? Ema, how did he know when midnight was? Amos, Hashta Moshe Rabbein, Lay have a yada, the Ksiv Kachat says Laila, and the Yatim Turkman Triam. We know that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he made up with Parai to leave Mitzrayim, and to, it says, Kachat says Alayla, around the midnight. Why didn't it say midnight? Because obviously he didn't have a way of calculating when midnight was. So how could David HaMelech know the precise second of midnight that he could make such a statement that I never slept past midnight? Well, if he didn't know precisely what that is, David HaMelech should have said, around midnight I get up to praise Hashem. Because it's very difficult to calculate precise midnight. Why does the Pasuk tell us in Shemois, right? If, if Hashem, if those are the words of Hashem, right, that around midnight I will leave Mitzrayim, and that Hashem told him around midnight, you mean Hashem didn't know when midnight is? That doesn't make any sense. God, God created everything. Hashem told him, and Moshe Rabbeinu on his own, on his own uh, changed it to, to around midnight. Yes, it's possible that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know as much as David when it came to calculating precise midnight. David David had a sign. What was David Amelech's sign when it was midnight? He had a kinor hanging a harp, right? A kinor, a harp, musical instrument hanging above his bed. David Melech would hear at that precise midnight moment the northern wind would blow the music and he would jump up. Once it was all the Chachamim came into the base Medrash. And this is really the start of a fascinating conversation that the Chacham said, David Amelech, what's going to be with our Parnasa? It's time to stop davening, time to start learning and start taking care of the people. You have all the money, you're David Amelech. You have all the riches from the wars. So create a marketplace, create a business for each other. Don't say, I don't want to do business with uh, Jews. Uh, create business with each other. It's not going to be enough. We can't uh, feed ourselves. The, the, the pit can't fill itself. Go ahead and extend your hands. They went to to ask him for a solution. They went to the Sanhedrin to ask for a solution how to make Parnassah and And what did they do? They made. They ended up making a war. We'll stop over here. But we see that David HaMelech was sitting and learning, and yet the Chachamim, the people didn't come to David HaMelech. The Chachamim are the ones who came to David HaMelech and said, you have the resources, help out. And what did David HaMelech say? David HaMelech said, Hashem, I have resources from Hashem, but ultimately it's going to be up to the Jewish people to create the marketplace, to create the business, and make money or go to war. And